Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back. You know, in doing our work, we are all looking for resources and things that will help guide us in the work we do. And it is my incredibly great pleasure to bring a group of panelists to you today that are going to talk about the AAP's Blueprint for Youth Suicide Prevention that has all kinds of information that can help you transform your practice to include the workup of suicidal ideation. So my guests today include Dr. Christine Moutier, Dr. Lisa Horowitz, and Dr. May Lau. Dr. Christine Yu Moutier is the Chief Medical Officer of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. She knows the impact of suicide firsthand. After losing colleagues to suicide, she dedicated herself to fighting this leading cause of death. Dr. Moutier has served as the UCSD Professor of Psychiatry, Dean in the Medical School, Medical Director of the VA Psychiatric Unit, and has been clinically active with diverse patient populations such as veterans, Asian refugee populations, as well as physicians and academic leaders with mental health conditions. She has presented at the White House, testified before the U.S. Congress, and has appeared as an expert in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, The Economist, The Atlantic, the BBC, and CNN. I'm truly honored to welcome her. Dr. Lisa Horowitz is a return speaker to the podcast and is an amazing person. Dr. Lisa Horowitz is a staff scientist and pediatric psychologist in the National Institute of Mental Health's Intramural Research Program at the National Institute of Health. The major focus of Dr. Horowitz's research has been the detection of suicide risk in the medical setting. She is lead PI on six NIMH suicide prevention protocols that involve validating and implementing the Ask Suicide Screening Questions, or the ASQ in the emergency room, inpatient, medical, surgical, outpatient, primary care settings. Dr. Horowitz is collaborating with hospitals, outpatient pediatric clinics, and school settings around the country, assisting with implementation of suicide risk screening and management of patients who screen positive using the ASQ toolkit and youth suicide risk screening clinical pathways. It is a great honor to have Lisa join me today as well. And finally, Dr. May Lau. Dr. May Lau is an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center and the medical director of the Adolescent and Young Adult Program at Children's Medical Center Dallas, where she provides care for adolescent females and males, including sexual and gender minority youth. Dr. Lau co-chairs the American Academy of Pediatrics Texas Pediatric Society Committee on Adolescent and Sports Medicine, has been elected to the AAP Section on Adolescent Health Executive Committee, and is a fellow of the Society of Adolescent Health and Medicine. She educates fellows, residents, and medical students on the specialized care of adolescents, 
Her research focuses on a variety of areas, including adolescent mental health and gender-affirming care. Dr. Lau has spoken at national meetings on a variety of adolescent medicine topics, including mental and sexual and reproductive health. Please join me in welcoming these amazing clinicians to the podcast. Hi, guys. I so appreciate having all of you here. And I've got with me, because listeners can't see your faces, Lisa Horowitz, May Lau, and Christine Moutier. So these are some really outstanding clinicians, and I'm, I'm just so grateful that you guys were willing to make time for this today. So I think to get started, I just wanted to maybe hear a little from each of you about how you got into youth suicide prevention. And we're going to dive into this AAP blueprint for suicide prevention, but just maybe start with a little bit of background. So Lisa, I'm going to start with you. And I have to also say that your podcast that you did with me, oh, two years ago now when I first started is like one of the top three. So just FYI. So no pressure, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, guy. Well, I, first of all, thank you for inviting us and for highlighting the blueprint like this. And your podcasts are so invaluable. And as you know, I, I think pediatricians save the day all the time. So it's a pleasure to be here speaking with you. Um, I'm a pediatric psychologist and a health services researcher. And as you know, suicide is the second reason why young people die. And so, you know, what can we do about this? So I'm an instrument developer. And one of the things that I got interested in was putting tools in the hands of doctors and nurses so that they could recognize kids at risk and then do something to manage them in the medical setting. And, and so when I was actually like a trainee at Boston Children's Hospital in the Stone Ages, we had some patients, mental health patients were really flooding emergency departments. And one night a child took a medical implement and stabbed themselves. And it was at that moment that we knew that we needed a screening tool, a triage, so that we knew who was at risk in the emergency department itself. And so that's how the precursor to the the ASK suicide risk screening tool was developed and that kind of kicked off my research career in suicide prevention. And for people that want to hear a lot about the ASK suicide screener, I would recommend that you go back and listen way at the beginning because it's a really good interview. So, well, how about you, May? Tell us a little bit about you. So I am a pediatrician and I did a fellowship in adolescent medicine and I just love seeing adolescents. <laughs> I get great joy out of it. My residents say, and my medical students talk about the passion I have about taking care of adolescents and trying to make it fun for our trainees that adolescents are fun. They're important. We need to take care of them. And, you know, suicide prevention, you know, identifying those who are at risk for suicide is something that I do in my clinical practice on a daily basis. We screen for depression. And I feel like that, you know, coming to see a clinician is an opportunity to identify if anybody is depressed or at risk for suicide. Just the other day, we had someone come in for this cramps, menstrual cramps. And they, what actually was the big issue was their depression. 
and you know they and they're passive thoughts about suicide. So again, every it's something that I educate my trainees on, and they're amazed at how open our youth are in talking about their feelings and mood when they're talking privately with their you know with their with their doctor. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I, I would underscore everything you said. I, I too love adolescents, which I know sometimes people probably think we're crazy, but they're fun. I, I, I really enjoy it too. So, all right, Christine, how about you? Thanks, Leah. And thanks to my great colleagues, Lisa and May, for getting to do this together. Well, my story and my journey into suicide prevention is probably a little bit different because as a psychiatrist, it was actually more from my personal lived experience and then losing 13 physician colleagues to suicide when I was a dean in the medical school at University of California, San Diego, many years ago, that that kind of put me in a position of having personally experienced a culture that was not um, speaking a language or paying attention to the mental health needs of our own, you know, colleagues and trainees, and then being in, a, in an administrative leadership position to be able to ask the question, is there something that a work and a learning environment has to do with suicide risk? Began a program there for physicians and, and actually health professionals more largely now to prevent our own suicide. And that ultimately turned my interest to the national arena of suicide prevention. And I've been serving as the chief medical officer at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention for the last decade now. And so to get to do this project that really was, as I experienced it, driven by pediatricians saying they want to address the mental health needs of their patients. And, and look, the suicide science has grown so fast that if you trained more than several years ago, you, there's a, there's a catch up happening now. And, but to have the field of pediatrics and the American Academy of, of pediatrics take on mental health and suicide prevention of, of patients so squarely and so collaboratively has been an incredible experience for me. Yeah. I think that this project is it was so unique. I mean, I was grateful to be a small part of it, but, you know, to have this joining of forces of the National Institute of Mental Health, to have AFSP, and then to have pediatricians, and then there were a whole bunch of other people involved. I mean, this was just like an enormous undertaking. And the fact that the product that came out in just a hair over a year, to me, is phenomenal because there was a lot of work that went into this. So how did this project come about and, and who, who was involved? Well, my, I mean, this is Christine and I'll just say other people might have their own angle on like the how it came about. But at AFSP, we know that suicide prevention happens when the actual field and the leaders within a field take on suicide prevention as a priority. And we in the suicide prevention arena, we can't do that sitting outside of those fields. So it really does take partnership. And I had the opportunity to meet the leadership of AAP 
after the 2019 annual conference where I spoke on the topic of youth suicide prevention. And, and we at AFSP had kind of had our eye on AAP wondering if that might be an interest. And it really turned out to be genuinely a priority. And so the collaboration kind of started from there. And, and as we brainstormed about what, what are the, you know, of the dozens of things that we could do together, what was the sort of the first step to take? And it really was convening this summit with an eye towards the blueprint. And then of course, implementation is really going to be the name of the game that, that is to follow and is happening now. Lisa, how did how did NIMH get involved? Because these are interesting organizations that really don't necessarily work that closely together. Right. So, well, I would say similarly, the American Academy of Pediatrics was very interested in suicide prevention alongside their interest in depression screening, for example. And they, the AAP really partnered with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and then a few of us from the National Institute of Mental Health, Dr. Marilyn Powell, who happens to be a child psychiatrist, and myself, were fortunate enough to have this working relationship with AAP. And actually, for me, it started with a, a Dr. Greg Blonsky, who was, is, a, is a pediatrician out in Portland, and he invited me out there to train Dornberger, Dornbecker, sorry, hospital uh, in Portland for and train their staff on suicide prevention. And then really linked us up with people from the American, with the AAP. And uh, we just really, it was at a time when CDC was just coming out with new statistics about the increase in youth suicide. And, you know, I know NIMH has been working with AFSP for a very long time. And so it just was a natural fit for all of us to to work on this together. May, how about you? I mean, you bring the pediatrician perspective, but there were a lot of pediatricians. There, were, there was a really diverse and interesting group that were part of this summit. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I think it's, it is especially important to note that it's a, a diverse group of pediatricians since youth are, it is a diverse group of youth, right? From racial, socioeconomic, gender, sexual orientation, youth culturally, youth are diverse. So I think it's important that the pediatricians that are involved in this also are a diverse group of people and they see different patient groups. And so they can really provide important input on maybe some of the nuances that others may not see in caring for these individuals. What about, did anything surprise you as we did this? Because there was the summit that was in February of 21. And then there was a second, I can't remember if there was a third, but there were a couple of follow-up meetings and, um, and that was it. And then this huge body of work came out in March I remember March 2nd of 22. So what what surprised you the most about how this all went and the information that was gathered, May? What I really liked, it was a collaborative effort on improving the mental health care and identifying those at risk for suicide in youth. I mean, we all had the same agenda, all had the same goal, all had the same objective. 
is really improving our the lives of youth. And, you know, it's it's really important because, you know, the things that occur during, you know, during, you know, childhood and adolescence can really make a difference in the adult life. So it's something that we can do to prevent suicide or identify those who have mental health needs. We can really change their trajectory so they could be, you know, you know, happy, successful adults. So it sounds like the the alignment of stars kind of happened. What about you, Lisa or or Christine? Was there anything about the work that was a surprise? I, I will. I'm just going to give a shout out to Julie Gorskowski from the AP who really led this. And and the biggest surprise to me was <laughs> was how fast this all was able to come together. I really took like her leadership on it was just amazing. And, and, you know, of course, working with Christine and, and May and, and all the people that went into it, but, you know, she would come out with the timeline and I, you know, personally would think, oh my goodness, how are we going to do it by then? And it happened. And so that was, you know, that and everybody coming together and breaking down some silos between organizations. I think those would be the things that pleasantly surprised me. Yeah. How about you, Christine? Well, I'll just add that over 100 organizations and or individuals were part of the the summit convenings and were had reviewed the document, the, the blueprint in its draft form, and the speed, but it was also the collaborative spirit. And I've really never been part of something where there was such strong alignment that, you know, the, the usual kind of typical human things that come up that we were able to just work through it very quickly. And, and as an example, actually, of, of kind of how different this was, when any of those 100 reviewers made a comment or suggestion in the draft, unless it was like against scientific evidence, we made that change because that we were very serious about that sort of inclusion of everybody who's involved. And I mean, you know, people in the wealth, child welfare system, juvenile justice, athletics, education, lived experience, parents who had lost a child, like just a multitude of inputs. And it really felt like that's, that's how it is. That's what we mean when, when we say, you know, nothing for us without us and that all hands on deck, like a real spirit of inclusivity. And, and I will also just say one more thing. I personally learned so much about how to put into action the equity lens and to try to see everything from the research and practice standpoint through that lens of equity as well as lived experience. That absolutely for me was the biggest, you know, I mean, first of all, there were some terms, honestly, I had not heard the term BIPOC youth before. And so, you know, that was an education for me, but some of the, the things that were brought up by participants were such an aha and kind of a call out, like, wait a minute, this is not enough. And you're not thinking about these kids who have gotten all lumped in together as if it's one type of youth. And there's so many that have all these different needs and bring to the table all their special qualities. And so I, for me, that was fascinating. And then that it got pulled into the final blueprint in such a, a really helpful way. 
I, I thought was really well done. So when you're thinking about, I mean, who is the site for and, and what are they going to find? And so who wants to start off and walk us through what is this blueprint? Can I May? just add? Sure. Yeah, I have my hand raised. I just want yeah, yeah. to include on that previous comment that, you know, all youth are at risk for suicide. So we cannot just look at somebody and say, oh, they're not at risk. I don't have to screen that. All youth are at risk for suicide, no matter, again, as what I said before, socioeconomic class, no matter what race, culture, gender, sexual orientation, all youth are at risk. And so it's important to, you know, screen all, all these individuals. And so, again, with that inclusivity and equity, you know, it's, it's important to consider all youth, not just certain youth. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in doing that, we got, we have to know what to do. So Lisa, I see you nodding your head. So who, who's this blueprint for? So this blueprint is for pediatric health providers, but it is really for any adults that work with children because every single adult that works with the child in any capacity can make a difference in, in suicide prevention. And, you know, May, what you just said is so important. You know, you can't see suicide risk. And what do you do? Like pediatricians are so busy, right? They're, they're doing so many things and they're saving lives in so many other ways. And, you know, then you say to them, well, you got to do this one more thing. And it, it could be seen as, as onerous, right? Like a burden, like, how am I going to do this? And so this blueprint is meant to be a roadmap for pediatricians, for pediatric health providers, for people in the community. Like, how are we going to feasibly do this? You can't just say suicide is a problem and you need to, you know, screen all kids. Like, we need to give them a guide. And that was our hopes behind this blueprint. Like, here's a way to feasibly embed suicide prevention in your practice without overwhelming yeah, yeah. I, I want to second that. This is May because in, in on the website or the link in that you can find this in this blueprint is that there's strategies for clinics to incorporate suicide screening. And what I really like it is that you can go through each of the sections and and they're quite brief, so it's not so long, but it includes salient points and salient information that you can take away from it. And if there's additional information that you need, you can click on the link and there's more information that is provided. So I, but I really like the initial, the initial clinical pathway because it really provides that overview to show that a pediatric practice or any adult that was working with youth can screen for suicide in their practice. So just from a, I mean, let's say you know, I'm a, I'm a pediatrician, I'm in a primary care practice, and I'm screening for depression. Well, if you screen for depression appropriately, you should at least get an inkling of things are not going well, but you really need to ask about suicide specifically. And I know we've talked about in a lot of previous podcasts and with Lisa in particular about the PHQ-9, which I think a lot of us use with question number nine as a proxy for suicide. 
However, and I've learned this from Lisa, the wording about thoughts that you would be better off dead is different than asking about thoughts of suicide or killing yourself. So therein lies a, a really rich point. But so let's say I'm doing this and I'm out there listening, as I hope you are, and you're saying, I need to do something different in my clinic and I need to know what to do to manage this kid because I'm overwhelmed with these ideas. So is there is there a practicality? I mean, is there something I can go onto this blueprint and and find like, how do I start? This is May. So yes, I think again, as I said, going through the strategies for clinical settings and going through the pathway and then looking at each of the individual elements. One of the things that it includes is, you know, how to screen, who and how to screen and who and how to assess the suicide. And then it also has a section on how to manage someone who is at imminent risk of suicide and what safety precautions need to be implemented. And again, for those who are youth who are not at imminent risk of suicide, but have mental health needs, there is another section on how to manage these youth who need further mental health evaluation. So this is like real specific hands-on. Yeah, so Leah, one of the things we really wanted to do was give evidence-based practices and evidence-based tools to the clinicians, right? So what, what I have found in my research on identifying suicide risk is that when people make up their own questions, for example, and, and, and it's great that they want to start a conversation, but you can both over and under detect if you're not using tools that have been tested for research. So while we see that, we also see that if you make this rigid, you say there's only one tool or one way, or you have to do it like this, then that also isn't going to work. It has to be something very flexible. So like May just said, we came up with a three-tiered pathway based on research, based on a clinical pathway. And the blueprint kind of guides you through in, in the clinical section, there's three different sections of the blueprint, but in the clinical section, it guides you through, you know, here's how you do screening. Here's what you, here's the very important thing you do when someone screens positive. And then here's how to not overwhelm your practice because we're not going to send everybody who has a thought about suicide to the emergency department. That is not, that's not the blueprint. The blueprint, in fact, it's, it's the complete opposite. The majority of kids that you will screen for suicide risk in your practice will be 20 seconds and will be negative. But you will find this, you know, small proportion of kids who screen positive and the majority of them will not be in an emergency, but it will be so critical that you know that they're thinking about suicide or that they attempted suicide. And this is how you manage it without, you know, making, making it so the 50 other patients in your waiting room are now waiting two hours. Like this is a practical way to use this to be flexible to your own milieu. And so that's what the blueprint provides. And Christine, did you want to add? Well, I was going to ask you, Christine, so sort of from a, an organizational body really committed to, you know, sort of this big vision for suicide prevention, how, how does that fit in for what the work you do? Oh, it's so important. I mean, one of the key steps in suicide prevention is identifying risk as it is emerging. And suicide risk is, like May said, it cuts across all people groups. So you cannot assume, and we all have our own unconscious bias about things like that. 
And that is one of the reasons that AAP and Bright Futures is now officially recommending universal suicide screening starting at age 12. So it's, it's a key part of our Project 2025 signature initiative at AFSP, which is aiming to drive down the national rate of suicide 20% by 2025. And while kids don't make up the large portion of suicide burden in our country, it is any loss of life in youth that can be prevented. Is, is tragic and is part of a very, very important priority in suicide prevention. So I think one of the things about this blueprint is that it's incorporating the current science into something that's very pragmatic and useful. And like Lisa was saying, we don't need to hospitalize or send every individual who's having a thought about suicide to the emergency department or to the inpatient psych unit. That is not appropriate, but we didn't know better in the past. So we were all practicing in this weird way forever. And I think that's what's so new. There's now evidence to say that there are tiered approaches based on their level of risk, but we wouldn't have known how to do that without the, the specifics that are captured in this blueprint about what to do to determine their level of risk. And so that you know, the blueprint is very clear about, like you had said, Leah, there are steps that any clinic can take to begin their process. And, you know, one of them is to make sure that you know, as a pediatrician or pediatric health provider or other, you know, educator, what are the mental and behavioral health resources in your community? So that's step one. And then step two is to get your clinic staff, your team, even the non-clinicians on the team, trained and prepared. And so that everybody understands the difference between screening and assessment, because screening just tells you who needs to be assessed further. It does not say anything about their level of risk. Lots of people are having suicidal thoughts and that does not constitute an emergency. Yeah. Well, and I love what you said about, um, the preparation, because honestly, in 2009, the U.S. Prevention Task Force Services came out with this recommendation that we should be screening all kids for depression. So we did that. And there was like two sentences about, oh, and if there's suicide, like be prepared, which who know what that meant. So first of all, nobody ever trained me how to use the PHQ-9. We, but we're like, OK, we're on board. So we started doing it in 2009. We were doing it for years. I'm not sure we knew what we were doing, but we were doing, I mean, we were paying attention, but it was, I knew what I was doing. I didn't know what my partners were doing. And for sure, what you said, Christine, about if a kid had suicidal thoughts, man, I was on the horn with either the emergency room or our inpatient psych hospital and, and begging, please take this kid. And then they would say no. And I'm like, what do you mean? This kid has suicidal thoughts. So it honestly, to, I find that this is a relief to have like a plan, you know, a strategy that is, I like the idea of the tiered, you know, because I think that's so much of what we do in medicine. And I see May is shaking her head like, yes. And I really think that it's important that, you know, again, I got to work with Lisa and Christine and, you know, the, all the collaborators that this blueprint actually came up at a really important time, especially given the COVID-19 pandemic how it's affected the mental health of youth. It's so timely that this came out, you know, when it, when it did come out, 
And that now, you know, pediatricians have this roadmap that they can use because we know that youth are still dealing with the sequelae, maybe not the physical sequelae, but the mental health sequelae of that COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, I think the the fallout is just tremendous. And we probably aren't going to know for a few years about what really happened to kids during this. I mean, I've talked to some parents recently just about how much education that they lost. You know, they're like, and I talked to a teacher, she's like, you know, these kids lost at least a year and I'm still trying to teach seventh grade math, but they don't have sixth grade skills. So this is hard and it's not great. And then the kids are, you know, they're sad and it's just, you know, so I I think that other partnership piece and, and somebody mentioned it about education. So, you know, we, we don't do this in a vacuum. I mean, we, we have kids that are in school and, you know, we need to have our partners. And my favorite quote from Zero Suicide is, it's not the heroic efforts of individuals to, you know, help someone who's suicidal, but it's a team. So what about our community partners? And I mean, you mentioned, gosh, we have to have that. Is there something in the blueprint that helps you know, create that or figure out, okay, yeah, you said I need to have community partners. What do I do? So the blueprint has three different sections. And the first main one really for pediatricians and and health practitioners is the clinical section, which is what we've been talking about so far. But there is a whole second section that's devoted to community engagement. And that really is about, especially for pediatric health providers, there's such trusted, you know, deep resources in the community. Could they become more involved and look for opportunities to support or, or initiate suicide prevention partnerships in the community? And so that means with schools, with scout, scouting clubs, again, juvenile justice, welfare departments. I mean, there's, it really could be based on the pediatrician's own relationships and their own interests where they already have like a cultural familiarity and sophistication. And so there's a whole kind of sort of conceptual framework to think about how to find a good and establish a good partnership. Like how do you establish common goals and make sure you're not, you know, just repeating things that are already happening out in the community? And how do you identify what are the strengths and relative weaknesses of the different individuals or organizations so you can come together to make a whole approach? There's just, there, there's been, I think at the community level, there have been lots of efforts, good efforts, and some that aren't evidence-based. So I think the blueprint kind of steers the everybody towards the resources that are vetted and that are either evidence-based mm, or informed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So... And and there's just lots of practical tools. I think, you know, somebody really wanted to, they could kind of just follow the links and go pretty deep. There's templates for writing a letter to the editor in your local community or a letter to your local policymaker, urging them to make suicide prevention a priority for youth in their community. Just, you know, a host of, of things like that. I, I love the the complexity of this. And I was thinking about the community engagement. So one of the things that we did for lack of just not having it organized, we had these, we called them community partner programs. And I mean, I just called like therapists that I knew, some educators, special ed folks, some agencies like our community health, community mental health. And we would just we, we started just with, hey, we're using this PHQ-9. Do you know about it? Well, 
most therapists didn't. So then we had this common language. And so that was a way to, so we could educate them, but then I could also say, so when we do have a kid with X, Y, and Z, and it wasn't just about suicide prevention, you know, someone with an eating disorder, is there somebody out there that does that work? So we were able to kind of build this network that we didn't have before. And it was fun and they loved to come. So we had, we had them like every quarter. And that was really helpful for our pediatric community to know who did what, because a lot of communities that certainly in mine were very, I, I say resource rich and linkage poor. And, and of course, in some communities and rural communities, what you have there may be very different than what you have in a big, you know, center like Boston. I mean, their resources are going to be very different. So it's, it is local, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, I love what you did, Leah, because it kind of elevated everybody's knowledge through relationship building and just like information sharing. It, it is so different from community to community because some, like you said, are resource rich in terms of mental health professionals, but everyone's in a silo and they don't know each other or have a way to connect up easily and learn from each other and be available for support, you know, with patient care and other things. But then there are other communities where the mental health professionals and resources truly are in a major deficit. And that's where other, other actions are necessary. There is in, in many States now, there are, programs for pediatricians to link up with child and adolescent psychiatrists for additional support. So, so that resource is definitely highlighted in the blueprint, blueprint as well. And I'm so glad that you included that. I, I mean, we've done multiple podcasts on these child psychiatry access programs because for me, it was a, a life changing. I could not believe that I could talk to a psychiatrist on the same day and get some advice because it had never, ever happened. And it completely changed the way I treated kids, both in assessing them because psychiatrists think about it in a different way. And my, my prescribing habits changed for the better. I was much more careful because I had somebody saying, yeah, but if you thought about this, and it was very supportive, I never felt stupid. So yes, I'm so glad that you gave us a shout out to that. May, you're shaking your head. Have you used these child psychiatry services before? Oh, I love the child psychiatry access network. I think it's great. I, I hope it's in every state, but they are definitely helpful. And I think for many youth and even maybe families, they may rather see their pediatrician like you, Leah, or an adolescent health expert instead of actually going to see, to see a psychiatrist. And so it's not as stigmatizing. Sure. So... Yeah, I think I think they're wonderful. And I agree that they have always been kind and supportive and having you consider what else to do and other potential medications. If X doesn't work, they can give you a plan. Well, if this plan A doesn't work, try plan B and then let me know what happens. Well, and the cool part about that is then when the next the fifth kid I see now, I'm like, oh, I don't have to call him because, you know, this is what I think they would recommend I do. So now I know a little bit more. So I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit smarter. And they always don't mind if you call back and say, hey, I tried that and it's still not working. What else? So the other thing I wanted to talk and we touched on it a little bit about was, you know, health equity and suicide prevention. And, 
and I know the answer to this is no, is, is suicide risk the same across all populations? And do we need to tailor, you know, we're talking about youth and again, our BIPOC youth, do we need to kind of expand our thinking about different populations? Absolutely. There are definitely, I'll just give you a little epi, but like very briefly, like there are so American Indians, Alaska Natives, especially youth have the highest rates of suicide of any ethnicity or race. And Black youth now have the steepest increase in, the su- in their suicide rates right now. So, so much so that the Congressional Black Caucus now put out a ring the alarm report calling for more interventions for Black youth and more su- research on suicide prevention for Black youth. So, and like you mentioned, not only by race, but LGBTQ plus and kids in the child welfare system, kids in juvenile detention, you know, kids in rural areas that don't have access all there's kids at higher risk for suicide who have been understudied and, and underserved. And so we need a lot more research. And we need to make sure our tools are picking up nuances and are equitable across all cultures and are culturally sensitive. And so, you know, we we also can't sit around and wait for the research to come because in the meantime, there's people dying. So we have to use what we have, but we have to be culturally sensitive to how we're using it. You said something interesting, you know, this not make assumptions. I mean, when you're thinking about it like rural youth, you're thinking, gosh, they're from a small town. They're really tight knit communities. You know, they must have these support systems. Why would that group be at risk? I mean, any thoughts on that, Lisa? Yeah, I mean, I I think there are, uh, you know, a, a lot of people there's I think the number is like 70% of American youth can see a pediatrician once a year, but then that leaves 30% of youth who, who don't have access to one or who use the emergency department for their primary health care. And so if you do come in contact with the youth and you're a provider, you might be the only person throughout the whole year that's able to say to that child, are you thinking about killing yourself? You might be the only person. And so whether or not, you know, there's access to mental health care, which is such is a big problem across the whole country, this blueprint gives pediatric health providers at least four things you can do in your office to help people in rural areas or people at higher risk, even without the access. Because what we don't want is the, you know, just let's not talk about it because it's too overwhelming of our system. Kids are thinking about it, whether or not you ask them. So. Asking them and maybe putting a parent on notice is it could be an intervention in itself. And asking doesn't make people become suicidal. Just, right. just for the record, one, just for the record. Yes, <laughs> at least four research studies have refuted that myth. It is not harmful to ask a, a young person about suicide. What were the four things, Lisa? You said there are four things. So there's there's the National Suicide Lifeline that you can give them, which is a 24-7, you know, hotline. And there's the crisis text line and there's safety planning. And that can be, you know, what are you going to do when it's two o'clock in the morning and you're thinking about suicide and you find their own triggers for suicide. And there's lethal means safety counseling. So you talk about how to make the home safe for when someone's at risk for suicide. And a big shout out 
for people who are listening, if you haven't done the CALM course, Counseling Access to Lethal Means, it's online, it's free, just Google CALM and suicide prevention. I wish that I had done it a long time ago. It has really useful stuff. Crisis text, kids will use a text. I give it to everybody at well visits, regardless of whether they're having thoughts of suicide. And sometimes I'll just say, just put this in your phone. Maybe you don't need it, but what if one of your friends has something going on and you could give it to them or you could do it together, you know, so just as a, hey, and then of course the lifeline number will be finally simple 988 as of July something. So <laughs> go ahead, Minnie. So I wanted to mention, you know, just touch on what Lisa and you talked about with the crisis text line. It actually is in Spanish. So people can type in at the leave. It's Ayuda. Text them Ayuda to the same number. And, and Ayuda. A-Y-U-D-A means help yes. in Spanish. Thank you. Yep. And, you know, it's this, this crisis text line, you know, can be used for many different things besides feeling sad or at risk for suicide. It can be used for anxiety, relationship problems, parent conflict, you know, someone that you just need to talk to. And I tell them, they can text someone at two o'clock in the morning and they'll text you back. And I think a lot of youth like that. Oh, sorry. Oh. All the things. <laughs> One thing I was going to ask about, are there some of the support lines that are culturally specific for African-American populations? I know there are for like veteran services and things like that. Are there any other of these specialized population like Trevor Project, I think of for LGBTQ youth? Any others that you guys know of? Maybe Christine? At AFSP, we actually put together all of the sort of population-based culturally attuned resources into one section. So I will send you a link to that because there are a host of them and they all kind of do different things. And, and none of them are as simple as like the Trevor Project, which does have the 24-7 LGBTQ youth hotline. But they do offer things like therapy for black girls or black men, you know, different different weight resources and links. Dr. Alfie Breland Noble has the Acoma Project, which is very active in the BIPOC youth arena. And she also offers a host of resources. So I will give those to you and maybe you can link them. Is that anything I would find in the blueprint? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. All Perfect. of the resources are there. <laughs> Perfect. See, I'm so glad I asked. So you mentioned that there were three sections. We had the clinical section, the community engagement. What was the third? The third is a policy section. And so that's really about federal and state legislative action that we can advocate for all of us as citizens. And again, we tried to make it easy by summing up the top legislative actions that through research have a link up and evidence to show that it could make a big difference in terms of youth suicide risk and prevention. So that's all there again with some templates and things that really try to make it easy for, for anyone, but certainly for pediatricians who want to be more involved in youth suicide prevention advocacy. Well, and a, a word out there to pediatricians, if you have interest in this sphere, you know, you, you can just take this and sort of start making some change, you know, the be the change you can be the change in your community you know just just start somewhere i mean honestly i i don't know exactly how i fell into doing suicide prevention stuff i mean i'm i'm not i 
an expert in it. I don't do research. I'm just a community pediatrician, but I mean, you can get into this and you can make a difference. And I think the other thing is as you do the work, it's less scary. I mean, I used to be scared when somebody told me they were suicidal. I just thought, you know, like it was an emergency. I mean, it is urgent, but it's not necessarily a life or death threatening situation right this moment. It could be. And so I was just scared, like just, you know, go somewhere else, the emergency room, go to a hospital, just I don't know what to do. And I think over time, you know, my favorite line is sort of like, you've got this, you can do this. This is like triaging like we do for asthma. It is a similar process and it does not have to be scary. You just have to kind of be willing to go there. And, and I think that's hard. So, you know, again, with this, you know, of course, there's this call to action for mental health crises. I mean, we've heard it from top leadership. You know, this is still the second leading cause of death in, in teens. The first being, which is heartbreaking, is gun injury. Um, and so these are things that are things that we can address. So, you know, we can't pass the responsibility on. We have to take a stand to, to, to do the work because we can and we should. And we're in that position. I, one of you mentioned, you know, this, your pediatrician, I mean, You've been seeing them since you were in diapers. I mean, wh why wouldn't you feel like this is a person that could help you? So just sort of in closing, you guys have some some pearls, some takeaways. So, Christine, I'll start with you. Okay, wonderful. Well, just I, I, my mind has been on what you were just saying, Leah, that that having something that is evidence based to do knowing what that is and, and practicing it and, and not feeling that you're alone in doing that. But again, you've involved your team. Ideally, your whole clinic or health system is, is taking this on and, and you're part of that. But even if it's just you, you can start by knowing what are those, what is the next thing you do after a child screens positive, practicing that brief suicide risk assessment, and then starting to practice briefly getting into safety planning with that child, counseling the parents, educating the parents, helping equip them, because this is hard as a parent. I know how hard it is, even as a suicide prevention expert, to walk that walk of having a suicidal child in your home and sort of the emotional loop that throws you for. So any education you can give to the parent to steady them is essential. And, and understand that there's a strong literature around caring contacts. And what that means is that any communication that came from the health provider to the person who was at risk, and the, the literature really was looking at people who were being discharged from inpatient psych or the ED, but it basically showed that messages made a difference and decreased the, the likelihood of having a subsequent suicide attempt by as much as 40 to 70%. And so that means for pediatricians, even just reaching out, seeing the child sooner, have them back, a phone call from the nurse or the case manager, those can all make a big difference. Well, and I think about, you know, that again, those are, that's a familiar practice. I mean, we all know about the six week old and male know this scenario. Six week old has 102, 103 temp. And, you know, they're, they're old enough that we're not like they have to have a spinal tap and, and those recommendations are changing somewhat anyway. But you know, I mean, we know what to do with those really young ones. And then they're that sort of borderline age. And, you know, they're the ones that keep you awake all night when you send them home. 
And what do you do? The next morning you call the family and say, hey, how'd your night go? And the parents are grateful and you're relieved. So, and, and, and you mentioned it, Christine, it doesn't have to be you. It could be somebody calling and say, hey, this is Dr. Lau's nurse. And she asked me if I would call and just see how your night went. How are things? Were you able to get the gun out of the house? How are things going? When, when can we see you again? That kind of thing. So yeah, that, that's not hard. You don't need to have like a PhD to do that, right? May, what about you? What are, what are some takeaways for your pediatric colleagues? I think one of the things is that, you know, which we have reiterated is that, you know, all the youth are at risk and that, you know, if you take, if you could even take a few minutes alone to talk to, you know, you're the child or adolescent in your clinic, they may tell you things that you would not have known, whether, you know, would it be that I've been having thoughts about, you know, or I get really sad or I've been having thoughts about wanting to die. And, you know, that those extra few minutes, I know, and it, it is hard in a very basic clinical practice, but it really could, you know, play a huge role in that, you know, youth life, you know, and, and their future. And again, I think I want to reiterate what Christine said about not being alone, because when if you're a new, you know, a newly graduated pediatrician and this happens, what do you do? You know, who, who do I talk to? I think it's important to know there are colleagues out there who are always willing to answer a call or answer a page. And they can even reach out to the child psychiatry access network if it's in their community that and, you know, saying I have this patient, you know, what do I do? Uh, you know, how do I, how do I take it? What is the next step? I, I'm going through the pathway, but I'm, I'm kind of a little bit confused. What do I do next? Well, so always there to help. I could see that as a call to action for a group. I mean, if you're, unless you're in solo practice, but let's say you're in a practice of five and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. Mm, chances are pretty good. Your partners may be in the same boat and you could say, Hey, as a group, what, how do you guys manage this? Could we do this differently? And now you've made change. So, yes, absolutely. So, Lisa, I'm going to let you bring us home. And I have to say that when I first heard Lisa speak, she was talking about the ASQ. And I had just been able to implement getting our practitioners to do the PHQ-9, not just the two. And, and then she said, well, you should tack this on. And I just was like, what? You're asking us to do one? I mean, I just did that. We're going to have to pitch the PHQ and do this other thing. And. And now I'm like a convert. I'm like, this makes so much sense. It's not, it, it, it's a beautiful thing. And a plus I love, and I was at the, the NIMH site, there's the PHQ plus the ASQ that you can, you can print off. <laughs> so, so Lisa, yes. well, what, what are your pearls? Okay. Well, first I, I have to correct something you said, Leah, because you said you were just I think you said you were just a pediatrician or you're just doing this and there's nothing, nothing just about <laughs> what you do. You are a pediatrician suicide prevention champion and a model for every pediatrician in this country. And so just the work you do and the efforts you put in are just that's no doubt saving lives. So thank well, you. Thank you. And, and I'm just going to finish it by saying, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good, which is a saying, right? My grandmother used to say, and I never knew what it meant. And now I know. <laughs> but the difference between doing nothing and doing something is there's just like an infinite distance between doing nothing and doing something. 
And the distance between doing something and doing something perfect is, is very small. So you don't have to be perfect and there's no perfect here. What if you start the conversation with an evidence-based screening tool and have a plan in place that the blueprint will give you to manage the risk in your practice and you listen and you, you're present when that child is talking about what they're struggling with, then you have done good. And, and, and really like, you know, there's no perfect. There's just being present and listening and getting them help. So I'm just going to end it there by saying, please look at the blueprint and, and that'll provide a roadmap. Well, that's a beautiful way to, to close our conversation. It's perfect. And I will put links into the NIMH Ask Toolkit. I'll put links to AFSP. I'll put a link to the National Network of Child Psychiatry Access Programs. There's four states that don't have programs and some states have limited programs. I just learned like California has one in San Francisco, but it's not for the whole state. So that's an advocacy thing for pediatricians. I think that there will be more funding. There are HRSA funds now to expand those programs. So if you don't have what you need in your state, advocate. So I want to thank you all. I mean, you guys are rock stars. This thing was a beautiful thing that happened. And, you know, just if nothing else for those who are listening is just go to the website and just kind of poke around and see, is there something here that would mean something to me? So well, listen, t- take care and everybody's sending hearts. <laughs> I heart you back. So thank you. Thank you so much. And, you know, to keep doing what you're doing for kids. Thank you, Leah. And thanks to your pediatrician colleagues out there. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Oh, yeah. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. I continue to be amazed, but I shouldn't at the breadth of resources and services that the American Academy of Pediatrics offers. And I'm really delighted to share this podcast with you today because the AAP Blueprint for Youth Suicide Prevention, I think, is an incredible site and a wealth of information. So here are my takeaways. Number one, many thanks, of course, to this amazing panel of guests. Number two, In partnership, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the National Institute of Mental Health, and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, along with over 100 clinicians, came together in partnership to create a roadmap to reduce youth suicide. Number three, the summit, which was convened in February of 2021, brought together this incredibly diverse group with the same agenda and a hugely collaborative effort to produce a user-friendly, comprehensive living site for youth suicide prevention resources and guidance. The blueprint was released in March of 2022 at lightning speed. I mean, honestly, this is just an incredible body of work. Much thanks to Julie Gorskowski at the AAP for her work along with her staff. Number four, a huge takeaway a reality check. All youth are at risk for suicide, and without asking about suicidal ideation, we will miss an opportunity to save a life. So where do you start? Number five, explore the clinical pathway. This includes screening, tiered risk assessment, and disposition. How to ask, what to do if you have a positive, yes, I do have thoughts of suicide. 
how to assess how bad is this, and to consider safety planning and lethal mean safety, and then create a plan, referral, and follow-up for the patient. Number six, check out and share the community engagement and partnership piece. Consider a community partner party. I've done that several times, and it's really just fun. And as I've said before, always bring chocolate or some sort of treat. Number seven, review the resources and opportunities for advocacy and policy change. This includes campaigns, templates, and initiatives. These are our, these are our call to action. Number eight, consider high-risk populations. Alaskan, Native, and American Indian populations, African-American, especially males, LGBTQ youth, juvenile justice youth, and youth that are in the welfare system. Number nine, learn the epidemiology and be a knowledgeable expert on suicide prevention. Yes, you can. You are in the perfect position to impact a life. Number 10, always offer resources when you're seeing a patient with suicidality. This could include 988, which will be in place July 16th of this year, which is the Crisis Lifeline, Crisis Text 741741, and you would text HELP, or if you need Spanish, AYUDA, which is A-Y-U-D-A, for help, the Trevor Project, and Safety Plan and Lethal Means Safety Information. Number 11, don't forget about caring contacts and follow-up. This includes coordinated care. Caring contacts is an evidence-based intervention. It's simple. You can call, text, message. I'm thinking of you. And it actually works. It makes a difference. The research shows that. Number 12, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Start somewhere. Check out the blueprint and commit to change. And number 13, all youth are at risk. Take a few minutes alone with a patient to ask about suicidal thoughts. Save a life. You know that I really have a passion for suicide prevention, and the blueprint is really a lovely resource and I think very user-friendly. So check it out. Look at the show notes. I have some other resources there for you as well. And don't be afraid to do this work. You may be the only person who asks. Take care. And I hope that you're finding some time to carve out some rest and relaxation. Enjoy lemonade, watermelon, farmer's markets, lakes, all the things. Take care. And I look forward to you joining me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.